Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. This week, as the Supreme Court looks poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, many states around the country are already passing what are effectively bans on abortion. In communities where clinics remain open, volunteer escorts shepherd patients safely to receive care in the face of harassment outside clinics from protesters. Author Lauren Rankin writes about these everyday volunteers who are fighting on the front lines of reproductive rights in her new book, Bodies on the Line, at the front lines of the fight to protect abortion in America. From Free Speech TV's Just Solutions. Lauren, it is so great to have you with us. Thank you very much for joining us on Just Solutions today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I think what makes your book so different, really, from so many of the other pieces of literature coming out about abortion is that instead of looking at the politics and the legislation and the legalities around all of this, what you do is share so many human stories that shine a spotlight on what abortion actually is in this country. And you actually say that um, being a clinic escort, which we're going to talk about what that is in just a moment, but being a clinic escort is above politics or pontificating and it's about responding as a human to another human particularly in this very very vulnerable situation that they're in now being a clinic escort is really at the heart of the book and you yourself were a clinic escort you start the book by bringing us back to 2015 and a, a specific situation where you were escorting a teenage girl really into a clinic that you volunteered at in northern New Jersey in the face of just people screaming and protesters. Take us back to that moment. And after we hear about that story, we'll talk about the the broader issue of what being a clinic escort is. But what was happening on that particular day? I still remember her vividly. And so many of your patients, the patients you walk with sometimes kind of blur together, but not this one. I was the team leader that day, which means I was responsible really for the safety and security of the team. I was the one responsible for organizing everything, making sure that everyone knew where they were supposed to go. So I I knew that I had a huge wave of responsibility on my shoulders. And this cab pulled up at the time. My clinic had a buffer zone, an eight foot buffer zone from the door. The cab pulled up into that buffer zone, but the protesters did not care. They just rushed at this cab, shoving their signs into the windows, screaming. There were so many of them. It was so loud and so disruptive. And I kept telling, saying, get out. You can't be here. Um, I'm not even supposed to talk to them, but uh, they weren't responding to me at all. So I had to call for security and security came out and managed to clear them because they didn't actually want to go to jail and they knew they were breaking the law. And so I managed to get who I still hadn't seen who was in the back of this cab. And I managed to get in there. She sort of emerged. I didn't even really look at her. I just sort of put my arm around her and another clinic escort was on her other side. I had my arm up to block people from getting in, you know, in her space while we walked into the door and I'm just saying, it's okay. The door's right there. We're almost there. And we get inside and I look at her and she is 
sobbing and she's just a girl. She's so scared. She's so small. And what they had done to her was horrific. And she just sobbed on my shoulder for five minutes. And I just held her and told her it was going to be okay. I didn't know what else to do. Her mother eventually came in. Her mother was also in the cab, but couldn't get past all of the protesters. And, you know, her mother was very supportive of her daughter, which was lovely to see. But it was just, um, it reminds you that this issue that people talk about in this sort of political football way is really about people and what happens at clinics across America, not just at the clinic where I volunteered and not just in clinics in hostile states like Texas and Alabama. What happens across the country is uh, an intentional trauma and terrorism to dissuade people out of having an abortion at the front lines or at the very least make it as hard as possible to get and that's really why clinic escorts exist it's it was i thought about that that girl for a long time and i hope wherever she is she's doing well well i want to talk about the intentionality of the protests and and we can connect that really to what's happening with the legislation and and the different forces sort of behind the abortion bans that we're seeing in different states let alone the possibility of the supreme court overturning roe v wade but the intentionality around what these protests do and why then we have this need to have volunteer escorts who do exactly what you just described there bringing people even from their car you know to to help them run the gauntlet of these protests The history of these anti-abortion protests is by design, as you said, to make the experience as traumatic as possible. And these are already people who have had to potentially, depending on the state, wait 48 hours, have already had to look at a scan, have already had to go through several uh, obstacles to even get into the clinic. But talk about the history of these these anti-abortion protesters who are targeting clinics with the intentionality of making it even more traumatic. Right. Uh, So when Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, it really upended everything. Uh, You know, only a few states had legal abortion at the time, and suddenly abortion was legal in every state. It was a nationwide change. And freestanding clinics started sprouting up that specialized in this specific type of care and were really meant to provide this sort of unique experience for patients. You know, a sort of women's liberation uh, fervor was, you know, in effect in the early 70s. It was the second wave of feminism. And these clinics were supposed to be or meant to be uh, really safe spaces for this type of unique care that was just now legal in every state. And It wasn't long until abortion opponents realized, okay, well, we're going to do everything we can to ban abortion and to, you know, Jerry Falwell and the moral majority in the late 70s used abortion as sort of their linchpin issue to elect far right politicians who would undo a whole host of things, mostly civil rights. Um, But abortion opponents, genuine believers, realized okay, if we can't actually ban abortion through the law, we can make it really difficult to get one. And beginning in the 70s, the first documented sit-in of occupation, I should say, of a clinic was in 1975. It was only a handful of people and they were arrested. But um, by the late 80s, 
clinics were experiencing massive blockades of hundreds, sometimes thousands of, of anti-abortion protesters who would show up physically occupy the space in front of the clinic, sometimes chain themselves to the doors, glue the locks, uh, park their cars and uh, their trucks filled with cement blocks in front of clinics so that people couldn't get in. It was a, a coordinated effort to really end this kind of care simply through access. And clinic escorts emerged in, in the late 70s because the federal government wasn't doing anything about it. There, you know, by the time I was born in 1985, clinics had already experienced bomb threats, arson threats, actual bombings. A, an abortion provider in Illinois had been kidnapped along with his wife, and the federal government just did not intervene. And so people in their communities realized we're going to have to do something because no one else is going to do it for us. And so they organized these really ad hoc grassroots collective efforts of clinic escorts. They are all volunteers. None of them are paid. And they started walking patients past the protesters, trying to find ways with their bodies to keep these people screaming, targeting people, writing down license plates now, not in the 70s, but now filming people on camera phones and putting their images on the internet. Clinic escorts really emerged out of the lack of response from the federal government and apathy from local governments as well. And, you know, if they're not going to do it for us, we're going to have to do it for ourselves. That was really the attitude of clinic escorts at the time. And I think specifically now with what we're facing. Well, you mentioned earlier when you shared that story about your own experience as a clinic escort in northern New Jersey, that there was a buffer zone, that these protesters were actually in violation of, you know, this ordinance that they weren't allowed to cross this buffer zone. There is very scant protections, really, if you look at what, what is in place, particularly federally. And it seems that the only one goes back 30 years. Back in 1993, there was an act passed, the FACE Act, F-A-C-E, which made it a crime to block a clinic's entrance. But is that the only federal protection there is that is essentially stopping these protesters from harassing patients going into clinics? Yes. The FACE Act was passed in response to the first assassination of an abortion provider in U.S. history. Dr. David Gunn had been harassed for weeks by protesters at his clinic in Pensacola, and he was unfortunately finally shot and killed doing this work. The federal government finally realized this is an absolute crisis and put together hearings on the FACE Act of what, what we call the FACE Act, the Federal Access to Clinic Entrances Act. And the act passed with bipartisan support. It really, for the, for the time, it was pretty groundbreaking. It makes it a federal felony to intentionally block anyone's access from a healthcare clinic. And that's not just physically, um, you know, threatening them with words also counts. It, it can be punishable by up to 10 years in prison and serious fines for repeat offenders. So it, it did have some weight behind it. The problem is um, that what that did is stop the blockades that were happening. So now people don't actually just park in front of clinics and occupy it for hours which is a good thing. But the problem is abortion opponents aren't going to stop just because you pass some law. They find ways around that. And what most clinics 
today deal with is much more quotidian and harder to understand in terms of harassment. It might not be a thousand people chaining themselves to the clinic door saying, don't murder your baby, you're going to hell. Instead, it's people following patients from their cars, whispering in their ear, you're going to burn in hell, you're going to die in there. I mean, really horrible things writing down their license plates and tracking these people all across the internet, even harassing providers and clinic escorts at their homes or, you know, the their own children. And that might be illegal, but in to prove that you've been harassed takes a significant burden of proof. And it's not something that the police can deal with that day. Also, you know, I spoke to many clinic escorts, past and present, who said local law enforcement was at best apathetic and at worst hostile to us. They, you know, some police really see this as this is just two sides here. They're getting in each other's way instead of what it really is, which is a group of people trying to stop someone else from exercising their constitutional right and volunteers who are stepping up because the police are not effectively doing anything to protect those clinics. It's a lot to ask of everyday people. And since the FACE Act, which was uh, you know, passed in some Congress in 1993 and then signed into law in 1994, we've had nothing. We have had nothing. Since then, there have been 10 more abortion providers who have been murdered. And what we're seeing now, you know, with the end of Roe in, <laughs> in any day now, is large swaths of the country where abortion will be criminalized and the protesters therefore know where to go, which is the states where it is legal. They're not gonna stop doing this. They're just going to reframe how they do it. And clinics in pro-choice states are going to be in for a real inundation of protesters as well as patients. You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Today we're speaking with Lauren Rankin. Her new book is Bodies on the Line at the Front Lines of the Fight to Protect Abortion in America. The book tells the history and the stories of volunteer clinic escorts who play a crucial role in shepherding patients to the doors of clinics in the face of harassment from protesters. We'd love you to join the conversation on social media, hashtag just solutions at free speech. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Lauren, you talked um, about the fact that there really has not been anything since 1993 to stop the harassment of people of people accessing, you know, the, the care in these clinics. If you compare that to the very swift action when the Supreme Court uh, paper on Roe was leaked and there were people showing up at the homes of the Supreme Court justices, pro-abortion supporters who were targeting them, there was very quick calls to say we need to stop these kind of protests at people's homes. You wrote a very interesting article in Slate comparing the inaction on one side in terms of uh, not uh, stopping the protests at the clinics, but the very swift action calling for an end to the protests at the homes of the Supreme Court justices. Talk a little bit about that, because um, there does seem to be several layers of hypocrisy potentially built into, you know, juxtaposing those two situations. 
Oh yeah. It's a whole onion layer dip of layers happening with that. So, you know, on the, on its face, when the leaked ruling came out and we read it, it was obviously horrifying in its scope, not just overturning Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the 1992 ruling that upheld a person's constitutional right to an abortion, but basically showing their entire roadmap for how this court is going to dismantle the right to privacy and everything that falls under it. People were understandably horrified and outraged. That's an entirely unpopular and uh, I would argue unconstitutional and undemocratic viewpoint. And so people, this woman actually has been doing this in her community. She lives in the same neighborhood as Justice Brett Kavanaugh in Washington, D.C. And she's been quietly holding vigil outside his house for the past few months, really since the oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, which is this case that was held in January. And suddenly people wanted to join her. Lots of people wanted to join her. There are peaceful protesters that are sitting in this space. They are not on his lawn. They are not in his yard. Um, but saying, if you're going to do this, then we're going to express our outrage. And all of a sudden, all of these calls of this is uncivilized, this is absolutely unacceptable to target a Supreme Court justice in this way. I absolutely agree. No one should be targeting them for violence. That is not what anyone is talking about here. And Susan Collins, in the senator from Maine, the Republican senator from Maine, whose support for Kavanaugh pushed him over the edge, someone, some lovely Mainer wrote in chalk, I mean, the nicest protest message I've ever heard, which was, please, Susie, don't do it. Support abortion rights. Um, something to that, to that effect. And she called the police. What we're seeing here is, when those in power are actually challenged on what they're doing, especially when it's unpopular and particularly when it's about to oppress someone, the only way they can claim the high ground is to say, that's an uncivilized way. I, I don't think there's any sort of civilized way for someone to say, please get your boot off of my neck. And I, it's particularly ironic when you juxtapose it with the fact that 11 abortion providers have been shot and killed, murdered for doing this work since 1993 in this country. And we haven't, since 1994's FACE Act, had a single piece of federal law that pr provides any protection for these providers, for the clinic staff, for the clinic escorts. We're not talking about any of that. No one is saying it's, I missed when someone said that it was uncivilized for George Tiller to be shot and killed while serving as an usher in his church, or Dr. Bart Slepian, who was shot and killed in his own kitchen after coming home from synagogue with his family. This is what happens to abortion providers in this country. And instead of talking about the decades of not only terrorism and aggression, but outright violence, murder, and that has helped lead us to this crisis moment, moments that you know the federal government really hasn't done much to solve if anything we're talking about whether or not it's nice to go protest outside of samuel alito's house and as i wrote in the slate piece the real threat to americans health and safety isn't a protester holding a don't tread on me sign with a uterus on it outside of samuel alito's house it's what samuel alito is about to do to all of us in our own house and I just find the entire argument to be absurd. 
there's there's no way to ask someone to please be a little bit more respectful while I eradicate your entire constitutional framework. That's it just seems ridiculous to me. In terms of what's currently happening and what could potentially continue to happen if the Supreme Court doesn't indeed overturn Roe v. Wade, there are many states who are poised to essentially completely ban abortion. And the impact on what what you write about is sanctuaries, sanctuary states. You have a chapter in your book, Sanctuary State of Mind. And we're already seeing this. We're already seeing people seeking abortions moving from one state or having to travel from one state to a neighboring state. But those neighboring states now are poised to potentially ban abortions themselves. So we're going to have these um, fewer and fewer states. I think there's like 10 percent of counties in the country right now that actually have an abortion clinic and that's set to decrease even more. So we're going to have fewer states, states like California, states like Colorado that are passing legislation to protect abortion rights. And you've spoken about those states really need to gear up for an influx of these protesters at these clinics and that energy that's coming. What about the role of escorts then? Because that is changing. Not only are they going to be needed to help bring women, bring people seeking abortion care, you know, from the the car park into the clinic itself, but we're already seeing these um, volunteers morph in their roles, say in states like Texas, helping women to book flights to other states, helping to arrange childcare because they're going to have to leave for even longer. Talk talk about how these particular types of volunteers are already kicking into gear in response to what we're seeing with the abortion bans. So not only does this country have an amazing grassroots legacy of clinic escort volunteers, it has an amazing grassroots history of abortion funders. A lot of folks don't really know what abortion funds are, But they're these grassroots local organizations that raise money and provide funding for people who need access to abortion care and probably can't afford it. This country has the Hyde Amendment, which bars federal funding for abortion care, and only 15 or 16 states provide state-based Medicaid funding for abortion. So if you're a low-income person and you need an abortion, it's going to be really difficult to pay for that entirely out of pocket. So what this amazing sort of... (laughs) patchwork band-aid solution network has done is as the crisis has deepened and even before we're facing the end of row you know people have had to travel sometimes in their own state if you're going from one side of texas to the other that's hours and hours and hours that you have to drive and travel and then you also have perhaps a waiting period once you get there which means you have to go there you have to wait 24 48 maybe even 72 hours before you can actually come back and have the abortion so there are so many other factors that go into a person's life they have to take off time from work they have to afford gas which right now is exceptionally expensive they have to find child care most people who have abortions in this country are already parents there are so many different layers to that and really practical support, which is what it's called, has sort of emerged from some of these funds. And a lot of clinic escorts do that crossover work in terms of helping folks access not just money for the abortion, but money for everything else that goes into getting the abortion. Now, you know, once Roe does fall, up to 26 states 
will probably criminalize abortion, which means you're not just having to leave your state, you're having to leave your region entirely. A car might no longer be an option for you. You're probably going to have to fly depending on where you are. And so clinic escorts, along with abortion funders, practical support organizers, are starting to create this network of support where folks can reach out and get financial support and a layer of coordinated care through as many steps as possible. So practical support organizations like the Bridget Alliance in New York or the Midwest Access Coalition, they can help you book travel, they can pay for it, they will help you book lodging, they can help you with childcare, they can help you with having a designated person to drive you around since you might not be familiar with where you're going. An abortion fund will help you pay for the for the actual abortion itself. Maybe one organization or several funds might help. And clinic escorts are working to not only support you from you know, getting out of your car at the clinic to there, but some are doing this work in terms of helping to support people throughout the entirety of their travel journey for abortion. The real issue is it's going to be such an unbelievable number of people that are going to need to travel out of state now for this care that these organizations, this patchwork solution that this amazing movement has created, it needs serious money in order to be able to do this work. And what they really need is for you and for everyone else to trust that they know how to do this instead of putting on you know, some Facebook group or some Reddit subthread, hey, you can stay at my house. Imagine if you're a person traveling for an abortion. Do you want to stay at a random person's house who you've never met, who's unvetted, who mentioned something on the internet? Probably not. Abortion funders, practical support organizers, and clinic escorts are the ones who can help you because they know the community and they know how to get you what you need there. It's it's amazing the ingenuity that people have and that folks have had to solve or at least try to, you know, make less severe this horrendous crisis of access we've had for years. If the federal government would simply step in um, and do something, it's it's amazing what we could do to provide that care. But for now, it's really up to volunteers and folks working at small local nonprofits. Well, Lauren, we just have a, a few seconds left, but in the last 30 seconds, I mean, what do you hope people will get from reading all of these stories, the clinic escorts themselves who talk about their experience, your own experience as a clinic escort, but also just seeing the the barriers that so many women already have to overcome to access this kind of healthcare? What What do you hope briefly people will get from your book? I hope people understand that abortion is not just a political issue. It's a human issue. Real people have abortions for so many different reasons. And turning away from it, turning away from that humanity, from that vulnerability, it actually just diminishes our own humanity. What I think is so amazing about clinic escorts is that they saw a problem and they tried to find a way to solve it with whatever they had. I hope people take away from this book a sense that while we cannot control what the Supreme Court will do, that does not mean we are powerless. There's a lot we can do, and we have to be willing to do what we can. If anyone can take that message from this book, I would be extremely heartened. 
Well, Lauren Rankin, who is the author of this new book, so timely. I know uh, you wrote it before the leaked um, decision around Roe v. Wade, but it is exceptionally timely right now. The book is Bodies on the Line. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you so much. Our guest today was Lauren Rankin, the author of the new book, Bodies on the Line, at the front lines of the fight to protect abortion in America. It chronicles the history and it tells the stories of volunteer abortion clinic escorts. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast on Free Speech TV. We'd love you to join the conversation on social media, hashtag Just Solutions at Free Speech. And don't forget, you can watch past episodes of the show at our website, freespeech.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. For Free Speech TV and the Just Solutions podcast, I'm Maeve Conran.